Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish. From bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at Adelaide.com. Support for The Zest comes from People's Gas, delivering clean, efficient, and affordable natural gas for cooking at home with precise temperature control. More at floridasenergy.com. How many of you began the day with a glass of orange juice? And the answer is very few of you. I'm Julia Colon, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and Southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. Every week I say that same intro, but honestly, I can't remember when we last did an episode about citrus. That's because Florida's citrus industry ain't what it used to be. This week, we'll explore the rise and fall of Florida citrus. When most people think of Florida, their mind conjures up images of beaches or Disney World, maybe alligators or the latest Florida Man headline. But there was a time when Florida was synonymous with one thing, citrus. Florida was the country's leading citrus producer, outranking even California. So what happened? Yes, citrus greening is partly to blame, but that's not the whole story. For answers, today we'll be hearing from The Zest's web and social media guru, Chandler Balcom. He's a second-year grad student studying history at the University of South Florida. He's also a former student of Dr. Gary Mormino, who's a respected author, historian, and professor emeritus in the USF Florida Studies program. Chandler asked Dr. Mormino to walk us through some of the key moments for Florida citrus, including its origins, how World War II led to the development of citrus concentrate, and Dr. Mormino's predictions for the future of Florida's citrus industry. I arrived at the University of South Florida in Tampa in 1977. I was 30 years old. Seems impossible uh, that it was that long ago. But uh, I joined the history department, a very talented history department, and my field was immigration. And uh, what a place to be uh, with Ybor City in the backyard. So I co-authored a book on the immigrant world of Ybor City. But after that, uh, I had also had a Fulbright to Italy, which was wonderful. But I really pivoted in the early 80s uh, to concentrate my research and writing on Florida history. And so I've written a history of the Florida dream since World War II. And uh, in 2003, uh, Professor Ray Arsenault and I created the Florida Studies Program, the only such program in the state at USF St. Petersburg. So I've been at USF St. Petersburg since 2003. Well, I'm definitely talking to the right person then. (laughs) So let's go ahead and get into it. Um, So what was the role of the orange in popular culture here in Florida? Well, the orange is not a mere fruit, not a mere agricultural product. It, it's really part of the Florida dream. I mean, it's a for, for something that was an agricultural product, the orange has saturated Florida culture. A county is named for orange. There are a dozen cities named for orange. There's a citrus county. Uh, there's uh, 
uh, cities named after key limes. So it's the, the citrus in general. But what a, a journey from uh, South Asia to Malaysia to Persia to Sicily and Spain. So in, when Columbus sailed in 1492, oranges could be found in, in southern Spain and in uh, southern Italy and Sicily. If you've ever visited the Alhambra or places like that, the orange plays a very prominent role. Or if you go to a place like Cordoba, where you have these extraordinary uh, gardens, the orange is a very prominent fruit. It's kind of the, the garden of earthly delights. And uh, no one knows for certain when the first orange cutting or seed crossed the ocean. Uh, it was believed Columbus brought it in 1493. And, and no one is certain when it arrived in Florida. The fable is uh, Spanish missionaries brought it over, kind of uh, Johan Appleseeds, uh, uh, Giovanni Appleseeds, whatever. Uh, perhaps a bird brought a seed and, and deposited it. But the orange, uh, we know, was in St. Augustine uh, in the 1560s. You have these orange courts, really, uh, courtyards with, with orange trees. And it wasn't really until the 19th century when you have the possibility of transporting oranges across the United States did the orange become popular. In American culture, poor people often remember getting an orange for Christmas. This was a big deal. They recall scratching their fingernail across the skin, and you have these citrus oils and powerful sensory memories of that. But the late 19th century, you also have the beginning of the great commercial groves, both in Florida, but especially first in California. So, and the problem had always been transportation. Oranges are very perishable. How do you get oranges to market? Orange advertisements are fabulous. Uh, I, I wish we had the opportunity to, sh to show the listeners some orange crate art. Nothing says Florida or California like the Orange Crate art. Uh, the images of the Caribbean, the images of nature. There's actually a sapsucker brand. There's a cracker brand. They're illustrious and so engaging. You know, that's true. When a lot of people think of Florida, besides Disney World, of course, their mind quickly does typically go to oranges and the citrus industry here in Florida as a whole. So, you know, that's that's very interesting. I didn't realize how involved it was for the orange itself just to come over here. To give you an idea of the politics of oranges, I'm not making this up. It is illegal to defame an orange. <laughs> the cit that tells you how powerful the citrus industry was. <laughs> that explains a lot. So there will be no dissing of uh, of navel or uh, Valencia oranges today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, not today. <laughs> now, when I was in your class this past semester, I worked with you on writing a term paper covering the history of the Florida citrus industry during the Second World War. And to my surprise, there is a rich historical connection between Florida citrus and Dunedin, and also the role it played during the war period. I'm interested in learning about some of the key moments within Dunedin at that time. As you walk through the streets, you see murals and other works of art that give a nod to Citrus's history within that area. So my first question for you would be, why Dunedin? Why was this particular area chosen? How interesting is that we're at the WUSF studio 
in the shadow of Temple Terrace. And you could make an argument that Temple Terrace and Dunedin were orange cities. I mean, the, the Temple Terrace literally named after the Temple Orange. And if you go to the, uh, the golf course, what was the land development office, many people mistake it for a mosque. But it's actually supposed to be the Temple Orange uh, there. But in Dunedin, Dunedin, almost from the earliest frontier days, embraces the orange. In 1880, I think the population was a few dozen, not more than a few dozen people there. But uh, there's two fateful investors arrived there in 1883. Uh, one is uh, C. Bronson Skinner, and the other is uh, C. A. Duncan. And they, they're both from Wisconsin. At the time in 1883, you could not take the railroad to Tampa and then go to Dunedin. You would shortly thereafter, but you had to arrive in Cedar Key by railroad and then by boat. And they were on the same boat, realized they're Wisconsin Badgers. Both of them wound up really not just shaping Dunedin history, but the history of Florida Citrus. So what was the first major stepping stone Dunedin for Florida Citrus? I remember in my research, I ran across a family who specialized in the actual production of machinery that sanitized and sorted oranges from the citrus groves. So who were these individuals exactly? Lee Bronson Skinner uh, was an extraordinary individual. He, he arrived uh, in Dunedin in 1883 from Wisconsin. And and uh, his colleague, a fellow Wisconsin Badger, uh, Mr. Duncan, they, they both invested in groves but went very different directions. Duncan cultivated citrus, the, the Duncan grapefruit. I bet someone at home right now is, is eating a Duncan grapefruit, very seedy but very delicious. Skinner wound up owning part-time the Tampa Tribune. He built in Tampa the largest hotel the uh, Hillsborough Hotel, but wound up really being famous for his expertise in citrus machinery. Citrus was always altered by technology. You know, we'll, we'll end up the conversation with frozen concentrate, but the 19th century is how do you cultivate citrus? How do you get it to market? And one of his first inventions was this machine that would sort and grade citrus. You You needed to have the best-looking fruit because at this time, everyone is eating the fruit really for its eye appeal. The citrus label helped, but you didn't want it bruised. You didn't want it uh, too rusty-looking, and uh, that was his role. And he also invested heavily in, in citrus acreage. That's very interesting because I know that in 1935, Skinner's son, Bronson, founded Citrus Concentrates, Inc., to help assist in the American war efforts during World War II since a lot of the troops fighting in Europe were suffering from vitamin C deficiencies due to the lack of sunlight there. How did facilities like Skinner's in Dunedin assist in the war efforts to provide not only our troops, but allied troops with this much-needed vitamin C? To understand the role of citrus in World War II, you have to understand the role of food in World War I and also in earlier wars. Starvation stalked Europe during and after the war and during the early 20th century, there was a great deal of research done in uh, nutrition. And they identified vitamin C as very significant. So no product is bursting more with vitamin C than, than oranges. So the government 
built this million-dollar facility in Dunedin so Skinner could do research. And he, he did not develop frozen concentrate orange juice. That, that comes really right after World War II. But he was one of the first to develop that process. The, the, other, the other great challenge is how do you get a concentrated orange juice to taste good? They, they were able to can juice, but no one really liked the metallic taste Moreover, cans require a great deal of shipping volume, and it's Bronson Skinner who develops the, this process. The key was under a low temperature. He realized if you evaporated the juice at a high temperature, the juice tasted awful. And if you developed a powder, it was even more awful. I think the author, uh, John McPhee, described dehydrated orange juice as tasting like a glass of water with two tablespoons of sugar and a dozen aspirins. It just was, was awful. Skinner, at a low temperature, about 80 degrees Fahrenheit, evaporated the juice. And it did not require refrigeration. You could ship it anywhere. So much of that juice was shipped to American troops. And then uh, after the war, they also, I think they built an additional structure which burned down. It's probably the greatest fire in Dunedin history. Yeah, I remember running across that as well, the, the fire that broke out. Interestingly, the frozen citrus concentrate itself was not actually fine-tuned until after the war. And tell us a little bit more about that. That is uh, the, the Manhattan Project of Florida. How do you put the genie in the cans, literally and, and figuratively? This had always been a problem plaguing the orange industry uh, because of spoilage. With concentrate, you don't worry about if an orange is good looking. You're just worried about the, the pulp and, and the juice. There's some controversy over who should get the credit, but the patent went to three chemists who worked for the USDA and the Florida Citrus Bureau named Atkins, McDowell, and Moore. And interestingly, they patented the frozen concentrate, but not to themselves. They, they would have become millionaires. And, and their really great breakthrough was getting a slush with water that tasted like real orange juice. Uh, that, that was the key. The American public only consumed fresh juice at this time. Uh, some people had, had the Donald Duck can brands and that. But w their breakthrough was they evaporated the juice, and at a very low temperature, they spritzed the pulp with uh, orange and citrus essence. I think that's called the cutback method. That was the real breakthrough. And by 1950, 55, most of the oranges in Florida are destined for frozen concentrate. Now, the reason this would have made no sense in 1935 is very simple. Very few people had freezers. Even in their refrigerators, they had very little space, maybe for ice cubes. But a frozen product would have made no sense at all. And But the war is over there's a consumer demand, a pinup demand for new refrigerators and even separate freezers. And someone once said the most eloquent sentence in the English language is mix with three cans of water and stir. And out of that six ounce can, eight oranges contributed to its making. But uh, if you're over 70, 65 years old, most 
Floridians don't remember fresh orange juice. You, you remember concentrate. You also have to remember another factor. It's the baby boom. Mothers who may have squeezed juice for two children in 1930 had no time to squeeze juice for the Mormino family, which had six kids. Yeah, that's very true. Um, like you mentioned, after the war, the frozen citrus concentrate really did take roots in the households of Americans, not only because of its ease, but because of it, it was um, affordable as well. It was something that was easy to do for um, house moms um, who were taking care of children during that time. And it was it was very easy for them to get a hold. And, you know, it was very quick versus spending a lot of time squeezing fresh oranges every single day. And listeners over the age of 60 can still remember orange juice jingles. Bing Crosby crooning uh, on the radio. He also owned a great deal of stock, I think, with Sunkist. Anita Bryan in Florida later leading to a great controversy singing about the sunshine citrus tree. Wow, that's 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 amazing. Yeah, you you're right. It it really shows the impact that citrus had as a whole after the war and especially here in Florida. And then that actually brings me to my next point. So Florida's economy seemed to skyrocket with popularity of Florida citrus, especially after the war like in 1948 they produced around 23,000 gallons of the citrus concentrate alone. But with that aside, the industry seemed to be a force to be reckoned with as a whole. Would you agree? Yes. Uh, one only hope that your great-grandfather invested several thousand acres in Florida uh, citrus groves. Invested in 1950, not in 2021. Citrus was a very profitable industry. It had immense clout at the state level uh, in politics. Think of Ben Hill Griffin. If you want the prototypical citrus baron, the Florida football field is named for him. His granddaughter was uh, Catherine Harris, the uh, embattled Secretary of State in the 2000 election. I, I bet the Florida legislature in 1955 had as many citrus grove owners as bankers. That, that's how powerful and profitable the citrus industry was. Now, I do want to take a moment to go back to the concentrate before it was made into the frozen form that we came to know after the war. Um, why, why do you think they weren't able to make the concentrate to what it is today during the war period? Do you, do you think it was just a matter of just not enough technology? Do you think it was a matter of funding? Because I know that the government got highly involved in the production of the concentrate as well in terms of providing resources and funding to these facilities. One challenge during the war was shipping frozen food to Pacific and Europe. This, this, that was an additional technological challenge. As long as the soldiers were getting vitamin C, I'm not sure anyone cared whether it tasted good or not. The, the, the challenge was to get vitamin C and keep soldiers well-nourished, which they were, American soldiers. The, the logistics of World War II, uh, of supplying GIs in the South Pacific, is extraordinary and successful. Yeah, it definitely seems like that was the focus, was just to provide these individuals with what they needed at that time and then fine-tune 
the product later on. One of the ironies is the other industry that did quite well was uh, the soft drink industry. Coca-Cola offered to provide every American soldier a, a bottle of Coke wherever they were, and the government would build them stations uh, of warehouses and factories so they could all they had to do was send the syrup they they built bottling factories so coca-cola became a national brand coca-cola now i believe owns the biggest frozen concentrate company uh, corporation oh that's as does pepsi pepsi and coca-cola invested very well now whether it's a good investment in 2021 we'll talk about later and that does bring me to <laughs> My next point as well. I, I am interested to get your thoughts on this. With the current state of Florida's citrus right now in 2021, where do you expect the industry to be in the future? Let me, let me answer that question with a question for your listeners. And I know the answer, by the way. How many of you began the day with a glass of orange juice? And the answer is very few of you. I, uh, I ask this question every time I teach a class in food and history, and I think maybe twice in the last 20 years, a student has raised his or her hand and said, yes, I had oranges. We simply are not drinking much juice anymore. So it's public taste. One of the reasons is you've got so many more options. You can have bottled water with kiwi flavor. Uh, you can go to Starbucks and get a frappuccino. Uh, you just have so many options now. Uh, second issue is uh, calories. Many people, the, the first thing many adults associate with orange juice is sugar. And the third problem is maybe the most critical right now in Florida is uh, about 2003, a new disease was discovered in the Florida fields, I think, in Hialeah. And it's, a, it's an Asian insect, but the disease is called citrus greening. And as yet, there's no cure. It has just ravaged the groves in Florida. If you drive around Florida, uh, I see a lot of abandoned groves. Now, uh, a, a fourth issue, going back to our previous question, by the way, is it's much more profitable now to grow condos than orange groves. Don't feel too bad, I think, for the citrus owners. I, I, I wrote an article in the Tampa Bay Times about a decade ago on the citrus industry discussing topics we discussed today. And a Orange Baron did an op-ed in the paper saying, uh, kid, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, if you're in the citrus business, you're always dealing with crises. We had uh, freezes before. We had citrus canker before. Ten years later, by the way, it's much worse. It doesn't look optimistic. To give you an idea of how far Florida's plummeted. So in, in during World War II, for the first time, Florida surpassed California as the number one citrus state. This year, California is replacing Florida, which is hard to believe given the growth of California. But it tells you how little acreage is devoted to citrus now. And if I ask you, what's the number one nation in citrus production, it's no longer the U.S. It hasn't been for several decades. It's Brazil. And the, if you're drinking orange juice this morning, there's a good chance the juice came from Brazil, not, not Florida. 
Yeah, I've spoken with a lot of individuals who have kind of grown up in this area alone within Tampa, Sarasota, St. Petersburg, even individuals up in Pasco County where I myself live. And I hear a lot of stories on how you used to be able to go down State Road 41 and just it, the entire road was just lined with citrus groves from left to right everywhere. So it's it's really interesting to see now how little there are. Um, and it's something that I hope that we, we would be able to fix and we might be able to fix, but I'm not sure moving forward what the current state of Florida citrus as a whole is going to be. If you're a student of Florida, as, as I am, I find myself dealing more and more with loss. Where It's the loss of wetlands. It's the loss of crystal clear springs. But especially the loss of a culture that was deeply ingrained in Florida. So we lived in Temple Terrace in the 70s and 80s. And often on Sundays, we would go for a drive on 301 or Highway 41. You would see dozens and dozens of roadside fruit stands. Always the same pitch, free glass of juice, squeezed in our own grove. Good luck finding uh, that today. I mean, it just... More than likely, that citrus grove is track housing, and uh, it's the, the land is much more valuable as real estate than in agriculture. I, I hope the citrus industry is not a sponsor of WSF. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, Dr. Mormino, I must say it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. The Florida citrus industry deserves a lot more notice than it typically receives just based off of the conversation I've had with you. Your insight has proven how this industry has not only shaped our understanding of citrus here in the Sunshine State, but the American consumption and influence as a whole. So thank you again. It was a pleasure seeing you. Chandler, I am proud of you. Dr. Gary Mormino is an author, historian, and professor emeritus in the Florida Studies Program at the University of South Florida. He was speaking with the Zest's own Chandler Balcom. Chandler is a second-year grad student at USF, specializing in Eastern European history with a focus on the Soviet Union. But as we've just heard, Chandler also enjoys learning about the history of the Sunshine State. Chandler handles the website and social media for The Zest, so hit us up on Facebook or Instagram at The Zest Podcast and let him know directly what a great job he's doing. I'm Delia Colon. I produce The Zest with Andrew Lucas. This week, we also had help from... Mark Hayes and Lily Tyson. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media, copyright 2021.